0: I'll just wait for some people to trickle on in. If we haven't met yet, my name is Taylor. I love being with you guys. I get to teach tonight. And guys, um, just right off the bat, I want to make one additional plug for fall retreat. I have, uh, I've been to a, quite a few fall retreats, not quite as many as a, Melissa, no offense, um, and I've, I've never regretted it. I can remember having amazing conversations and teachings and quiet times from these retreats. And I can remember really bonding with, like, my new friends at this, at this particular retreat. So I totally get it if you're unsure. Um, maybe you're, like, maybe you've told someone, I'll pray about it. I would just encourage you, maybe you should pray, God, why shouldn't I go? Just a thought. Would love to see you there. And um, we'll be bringing at least one of our kids to retreat. So... You'll want to come to see them. Speaking of kids, you might remember my family from a few weeks ago, if you were here with us. I showed this picture of Cassidy, Matthew, and Sophie, beautiful people. Here are a few more um, kind of realistic pictures of the kids. Yep, Matthew's trying octopus there, um, Sophie is bathing in her yogurt, and uh, yeah, Believe it or not, Sophie, it was, it's hard to find an unattractive picture of Sophie because she is just ridiculously cute all the time. I, I do not have a bad picture of her. So Cassidy and I doubled our family size in a 23-month span, and, um, you know, there's literally nothing that can prepare you for something like that. It's a cliche, but there's no manual for how to raise kids, and there is definitely no manual for how to raise two kids under the age of three at the same time. Other than Instagram Reels. They are a lifesaver. So, we're fighting for our lives. Kids have not outnumbered us technically, but they have beaten us many times. Uh, You may notice that I've got a bit of the sniffles. (laughs) That's thanks to my wonderful little boy, Matthew. He was sick this weekend, and, you know, if you've been around small children much... um, you might know that they spread bodily fluids like their life depends on it. So I've never felt another person's sneeze hit the back of my throat before having kids. So, um, and on that note, just a, a quick story to further illustrate that concept um, of the generosity that our kids have. Uh, I actually just told this one to Jake and Jackson last week. And full disclosure, if you are particularly squeamish, about um, bodily functions, you may want to just like plug your ears from time to time. I'll y- let you be the judge, but you've been warned. So we, are, we, we started getting Matthew potty trained last summer, and by now he pretty much gets it. But sometimes um, he gets up from his little potty and he doesn't know if he's pooped and peed or just peed. Okay, it's a valid question. Sometimes, also, sometimes he takes a really long time to go to the bathroom. So, while he was going this one time recently, I was in the kitchen nearby doing some dishes. Got to get them done sometime. And all of a sudden, because everything that a toddler does is all of a sudden, Matthew yells, Dad, I poop! I poop! I poop! If anyone knows him, that's, that's a pretty good impression. Yep. Uh, The next thing I hear are my daughter's quick little footsteps tromping toward the bathroom. So I start booking it to get there before she does. Now, fortunately, Matthew has not actually pooped. Just pee in his potty. But he thinks that he has, so he's laying on the bath rug waiting for me to wipe him. Unfortunately, Sophie has beaten me to the potty. It's it's just incredible how fast a small, tiny little person can move um, when they're motivated. <laughs> so I run to the bathroom. Just as Sophie has picked up the potty, she's actually bringing it to pour it down the drain, um, but it's a little too heavy, so she ends up pouring it all over her brother who's laying on the ground. <laughs> yep. Yep. I would not be exaggerating if I said that things like that happen almost every day of my life. (sighs) Yeah. Raising kids is not easy, but it's also the absolute best. (laughs) They are the most incredible little people I know. I love them so much, so, so much. They're just ridiculously precious to me. And at the end of the day, I don't care if they're bathing in their own pee and I have to clean it up. I just love them. And hey, while we're on a high note, Let's get the Bible pastors up here. Handing out Bibles right away. By now, hopefully you know the drill. Uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, take this one home with you. There you go. As we're getting the Bibles passed out, I want to share a little bit more about me. I mentioned last time that I taught, three weeks ago, that I love movies. I am a huge film nerd. Have been for years now. And some of the Movies, the first movies that sparked my passion for movies were The Lord of the Rings Trilogy. Do you guys know about The Lord of the Rings Trilogy? It's hit and miss sometimes. Yep. Well, I finally get to tell a story that officially dates myself. Um, One of my strongest childhood memories comes from when I was in the third grade. Nine years old, I saw The Return of the King opening week in the River Park, Square Mall, AMC Theater in Spokane. That was an experience I will never forget. It was 20 years ago. <laughs> yep, twenty years ago. There's so many things that are remarkable about this trilogy, from the sets and the makeup to, you know, the practical effects to the cinematography. They're masterpieces, but I think there's one thing, and I think that is the story is what sets the movies apart. Um, and in case you haven't seen them, allow me to give you just a really short summary of this ten-plus hour epic. There is a ring that grants whoever wields it tremendous amounts of supernatural power. This ring of power will, however, also corrupt its bearer, its evil. So much so that the protagonists of the story set out to destroy the ring so that no one, especially Sauron, the main villain, gets their hand on it. Because if they do, they will inevitably rule Middle-earth in peril and devastation. Are you with me? There's a scene from the first movie, if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably seen the associated memes, um, where a council assembles to discuss who will carry the ring to Mordor to destroy it in the fiery depths of Mount Doom. We're getting so nerdy now, so if you're not into this, man, I'm sorry. Um, This group is made up of powerful wizards, mighty warriors, leaders of nations, immortal elves. Surely one of them could carry the ring to Mordor. But alas, no one is able to carry the ring because they are all susceptible to its temptation to evil. The most powerful of them all, Gandalf, won't even touch it out of fear that he will devolve into a dark lord of terrible power. Boromir, one of the characters, says, It is a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt over so small a thing. So their abilities and their aspirations actually prohibit them from the task. They're all too advanced in their abilities to carry the ring safely. All except the hobbits. Who are the hobbits? Well, the hobbits are a petite bunch who live by simple means for simple ambitions. The best part of their year is revealing who in the community grew the best pumpkin. They're farmers who have never held a sword, never studied a tome. They don't have any particularly high aspirations in life. They're sort of like my kids just living in the moment, eating their food with enthusiasm, and literally crying over spilled milk. But, counterintuitively, these qualities are what qualify the hobbit, Frodo, to carry the ring of power. He's the only one remotely able to resist its allure, precisely because he is as innocent as a child. He has little to lose and nothing to gain. And with the help of his fellow hobbits, shout out to Sam, The ring of power is destroyed and peace is restored to Middle-earth by its most unassuming, small, lowly residents. And, you know, there's something really powerful about this story, something that grips our hearts. We long for this to be true. We wish that we could bring ourselves to believe that the world can be shaped through humble and kind people, people of low status. But we are rarely able to bring ourselves to actually believe in it. The world we live in right now is in the hands of high up political leaders. There are multiple active wars, endless conflicts, political tensions, and yet we will continue to put the same professionals back into power. And I'm not trying to make any specific political statements, it's just our reality. We put our trust in the experts. We wouldn't dream of putting the fate of our country in the hands of a hobbit. And this is a sentiment that has been shared forever stretching back to Jesus' time and long before that. Humans have always always tended to believe that the powerful, the wise, the wealthy, the strong, those whose lives are all put together, are the ones on whom God's favor rests. But Jesus tells a different story. And he does this through his words and actions. Jesus lives out what many have come to call the upside-down kingdom. The Upside-Down Kingdom. You might want to write that down, because we'll be unpacking that tonight. The Upside-Down Kingdom. We've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew this week. Not this week, all this quarter. After this week, we'll be nearly halfway through the quarter, which just feels wild. The last few weeks, Brandon and Meredith uh, taught on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Two weeks ago, Meredith challenged us to really examine our words and the way that we speak We can use our words to either uplift or degrade other human beings. She also encouraged us to see the Sermon on the Mount not as a checklist of do's and don'ts, and rather as a mindset that the kingdom brings that transforms our whole life. Last week, Brandon taught on Jesus' radical teaching on finding true security in Jesus. And one of the ways that he showed us that we do this is by recognizing that we live in the now but not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is now but not yet. This is an essential concept for us to understand about the kingdom. Jesus holds attention for us of hoping for the restoration of all things while also reminding us of our role in bringing that restoration as co-workers with God. This is just so profound. I don't even know if I fully understand that. We're partners with God in bringing the complete restoration of all things. Brandon showed us in Genesis one26 through 28, which says that our purpose as humanity is to rule over creation as God's image bears. And now Jesus is demonstrating that calling himself through his life and through his teachings on the kingdom of heaven. This week, we are continuing to learn about the kingdom of heaven from Jesus. Sound good? We ended last week in chapter 6, and we're, uh, we're actually going to be leaping forward a few chapters to chapter 11. Um, we really want to be able to get through as much of the book as possible, but we're going to have to skip some passages to do it. I do want to challenge you, though, to read the in-between bits on your own. There's just incredible stuff in this whole book. So in Matthew 11 this week, as I said, go ahead and turn there with me. And as you do, um, let me pray for a message. Lord God, I pray that you would um, open our hearts right now to hear from your word. Jesus, you speak directly to us, um, to your people. You reveal these eternal truths um, to us, and I pray that, that you would open our hearts to receive them tonight. Amen. Starting in Matthew 11... Verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, this is John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Pause. What a question. If you were with us uh, for week two of the quarter, right, we talked a lot about expectations, expectations expectations you guys remember that anyone yep so this john john the baptist also had expectations about the jewish messiah and in matthew 2 we saw that he sh- very strongly believed that jesus was him he kind of went all in remember he was like yo you baptize me not me you and so now he's asking though hey are you the guy or should we be waiting for someone else so you know like what happened john where's your faith but if we try to empathize with John here, we've got to ask, what, what were his expectations? Well, not that he would find himself in prison, apparently. John likely thought that Jesus was about to whip out the battle plans like a general. He may have thought that the time for a regime change had come. Many Jews believed that the Messiah was going to bring be a military political leader who would overthrow Rome by force. So he might be thinking, Jesus, what's the deal? Like, are you about to rouse your followers to action? Are you going to be breaking me out soon? Let's look at Jesus' response. It says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What do you make of this response? Does Jesus directly answer John's question? John asks, are you the guy or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus responds with, well, here's what's happening. You tell me. And let's actually take a little bit deeper look at Jesus' response. What does Jesus say has happened? And if, I mean, if you go back and read the chapters since chapter 6 where Brandon left off, you'll see stories of blind people receiving back their sight, lame people walking, lepers being cleansed, deaf hearing, and yes, even the dead being raised back to life. In my estimation, if Jesus ended right here, boom, enough said. Dead people coming back to life, you're the Messiah, case closed. But Jesus throws one more line in there. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Not only is this the no, the only non miracle event, it raises some questions. Like, is the good news not proclaimed to the rich? Do you have to be poor to hear the good news, or are you saying that the good news is that the good news for the poor is being proclaimed? And if so, what exactly is that good news? Hold on to these questions as we continue reading, because we'll come back to them. Picking up again in verse 7, it says As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The son of man, Jesus is referring to himself here, came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. As we take a pit stop here, let me just ask, um, did anyone just read something that left them wondering, what in the world did that mean? (laughs) Who else would appreciate it if we uh, took maybe a second for a little breakdown? Yep, we probably need a breakdown. You might notice that Jesus uses this technique in his teaching. It's really complicated, okay? So pay attention. Jesus will ask the crowd a question, and then he'll give an answer to that question. Right? Anyone see that? I, I It's a little advanced, yep. <laughs> it's actually quite simple, but it's very effective. So some of the first questions that he asked were, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Was it a reed swayed by the wind? Well, if not, then what? A man dressed in fine clothes? And then you'll see Jesus gives the answer to these questions. He says, no, you didn't. You didn't go out to see that. You went out to see a wild, old school, Elijah-like prophet. Has John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. He wore clothes made out of camel's hair and ate bugs. He would shout crazy things and dunk people in the water. John the Baptist was a comic book depiction of an Old Testament (laughs) prophet akin to Elijah. Jesus is commenting on the people's appetite for the spectacle. Some may have hoped that John would call down fire from heaven like Elijah did. I mean, that would have been quite the thing to see. Jesus then affirms that John the Baptist was indeed a prophet like Elijah But that, in fact, he was even greater than any of the Old Testament prophets simply because he was the closest in proximity to the Messiah. He got to announce his arrival. But Jesus also says that it's better to be a beggar in the days of the kingdom that he's bringing than the top prophet of the pre-kingdom days. Jesus' next question is to what can I compare this generation? I doubt they knew what was coming for this one. Like, what if I said to you guys, hey, you know how I describe you guys in a nutshell? right?" I'm guessing that some of you might stop thinking about the TV issue you're going to watch when you get back from here, and you might lean in and be like, man, I wonder what he's about to say. Jesus is getting their their attention with this question now for his response. Jesus says, You guys are like whiny kids playing in the street saying, why won't you play with us? Jesus says, you wanted a wild prophet, but he was too weird for you. You wanted a Messiah, but apparently I'm not what you expected either. But one day you will see that John really was the prophet and that I really am the Messiah. This chapter marks a bit of a shift in Jesus' ministry. Since the early days of his ministry, he's really gained some credibility, maybe even some fame amongst the people. He's able to get thousands of people to come to his teachings. But here, he begins saying some more confusing things to the crowds. He starts calling them out, specific towns by name, even. Verse 20 continues by saying, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And a side note on this, just remember last week, Brandon defined the word repent as changing the way you think and changing your direction. That's all that means. They didn't do that. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll, be, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. These are harsh words from Jesus. He's going a bit full throttle here. Later on, we'll we'll actually see his closest disciples ask him, Jesus, why are you so confusing when you speak to the crowds? I wonder if they felt like Jesus was kind of blowing it, right? Like, whoa, 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 Jesus, let's let's like go back to that teaching about not worrying about tomorrow. People really seem to like that one. Um, And maybe just like cool it with the woes. Uh, It's getting a little awkward. I mean, Benjamin over there is like from Capernaum. And I think I saw Miriam somewhere. She's got family in Bethsaida. So whereas we might interpret Jesus getting angry with the people, I think actually a more complete answer would be be sorrow. Jesus was truly saddened by the response that he had gotten from his people about the message of the kingdom. Can you sense that Jesus is a person of passion? He wouldn't say these hard things to the people if he didn't care. It's been said that the opposite of love is not hate but indifference. Jesus is anything but indifferent toward his people. Jesus is anything but indifferent toward his people. Be that as it may, though, these are these are not the kinds of things that the people were necessarily expecting to hear. A lot of them had probably come because they wanted to get healed or watch Jesus cast a demon out of someone. Maybe some of them were ready to pick up swords and fight the Romans. Very few, maybe none of them, exactly understood what Jesus was here to do. And this next verse is going to challenge their assumptions even further, although it's pretty different in tone. Verse 25, read with me. Verse 25 says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think that there are some people here tonight that need to hear that specifically. You hold a belief about Jesus that he is unapproachable, or unable to handle you and your problems. You feel overwhelmed by your life, and you can't see a way out. I want to repeat Jesus' words here again. He says, come to me if you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble, gentle, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is nothing, really nothing like this, guys. There's simply no king's... Or rulers or authorities that would offer themselves to you like Jesus offers himself to his people. Do you want this? Let me ask you a question that Jesus asked his crowd What did you come here for tonight? What did you come here for tonight? Last week, Brandon shared about his experience in Chi Alpha, his first year at Central. He said, I stayed in Chi Alpha, kept coming to Tuesday night, not for the amazing worship, not because the teaching was the best teaching he had ever heard in his whole life. I mean, guys, you could pull up a worship playlist on YouTube and find a perfectly crafted sermon from the top 100 preachers online without leaving your room. But the reason that I kept coming back to Chi Alpha as a student, and the reason I still do today is because our ministry is built on kingdom relationships. Our ministry is built on kingdom relationships. I'm guessing at least part of the reason you're here is because someone brought you. And if not, props to you. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you can get connected. But I'm guessing that for most of us, you're here because someone invited you. And I hope that what you can tell about these people is that they know Jesus. What is Jesus actually saying here? What is he up to? What does he mean when he says, I am gentle and humble in heart? Why does he thank God for hiding these things from the wise and learned and revealing them to little children? Jesus is continuing a theme that began with the nature of his birth. The king of this kingdom is born in a feeding trough. The king of this kingdom is uninterested in political connections, wealth, and status. Jesus, the king of this kingdom, is gentle and humble in heart. He welcomes the poor and the weak. The apostle Paul put it this way The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on to say in verse 27. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God chose the hobbits to destroy the one ring. Guys, we think that we need credentials, we think we need to know everything. But the reality is, we just need to be innocent little hobbits. You remember when I said that this story is hard for us to believe? It's hard to believe that Jesus' way works. It's hard to believe in the upside-down kingdom. Jesus says the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Who are the poor? What does Jesus mean when he says the poor? Well, there's the literal take, right? The, peop- the poor are the people with very little money, maybe just barely enough to live on. It's likely that for some of us in this room, uh, that was or is your reality. Um, I don't really have to describe it to you, what it means to be poor. It's sort of one of those things where you know. Like, no one has to tell someone who's poor that they're poor. They know. When Jesus says, the good news is proclaimed to the poor, I believe he is saying, the good news is proclaimed to those who are deeply aware of their need for help. The good news is proclaimed to those who are deeply aware of their need for help. So there it is. I mean, I asked earlier, does Jesus mean to say that the good news is not for everyone? Well, here's the key. You are the poor if you will only recognize it. Are you aware of your need for help? Are you willing to admit, okay, yes, I I need help? If so... Receive the good news of the kingdom. I think that we can overcomplicate things for ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God. We might believe that we have to be humble and repent so that we can come to Jesus. And that's really hard to do. But interestingly, it doesn't seem like Jesus required the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes to repent before he hung out with them. Friends, this is the incredible mystery of our God. Humility and repentance are able to happen by us doing what? What does Jesus say? Come to me. Come to me. We have it flipped. Jesus doesn't say, humble yourselves and be gentle so that you can come to me. He says, come to me and learn from me how to be humble and gentle. We don't have to be humble ourselves and repent so that we can come to Jesus. We have to come to Jesus so that we can learn from him how to be humble like he is. And then repentance just kind of comes naturally. There are no standards you have to meet before coming to Jesus. Let Jesus' presence transform you. It is so worth it. Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to children, to my kids. Matthew and Sophie. Why? Matthew and Sophie are so unaware of this world and its problems. They're living in the ultimate freedom knowing that their parents are going to take care of them. They don't worry because they know that if they're hungry, I'll make them something to eat. If they fall down, I'll pick them up and hold them until they stop crying. They don't doubt that I'll keep loving them when they mess up. Last week, Matthew took a can of Tim's coconut milk off the counter and poured half of it on himself and the other half on the floor. I still love him. Still love him in the midst of his mess. I have no expectations that he knows how to clean himself up without my help. And I just sense that there are some of you who feel like you've spilled the can of coconut milk and God is just yelling at you to clean it up. And you're trying, but it's not working. Can you hear from Jesus right now? God loves you in the midst of your mess. He wants you to come to him. As we conclude, I'm going to invite up the worship team. Let me ask, what are you learning tonight about Jesus? What are you learning tonight about Jesus? A few weeks ago, I challenged us to come holding our expectations about Jesus with open hands. Perhaps you've been believing that the kingdom of God operates by the same rules as this world. Maybe you think that you have to get a good GPA before getting accepted into Jesus' university. Maybe you think you need a a clean and impressive resume before he's going to consider you for the job. Guys, the kingdom that Jesus is announcing operates by a different set of rules. The question is, can you believe this about our God? Can you believe this good news for the poor? Can you believe not that you have accepted Jesus into your life, but that he is actually accepting you into his? Let's pray to close. God, I thank you for um, the powerful word that you've given us. I thank you for putting it this way. I thank you for your invitation, Jesus. We love you. We ask that you would take us by the hand. Bring us close to you. God, I pray specifically that if there's just certain people here that feel like that is a really hard ask, that they maybe have never even tried to come into your presence, that you would make it even easier for them right now. God, I pray that... um, that those of us here would even reach out in prayer, reach out for prayer Um, to other people here. Jesus, I pray that this message would sit on our hearts, that we wouldn't hear a condemning voice, but that we would hear this voice of compassion that says, come to me.